Today on Let the Bible Speak. Part two of our study dealing with the possibility of falling from grace. Can a Christian forsake Christ and forfeit salvation? Good morning and welcome to Let the Bible Speak. Thanks for joining me for today's program. Can a person once saved fall from grace and be eternally lost? Is it possible for a follower of Christ to turn away from following Him and thus forfeit salvation? That's the question we took up in our study last week and that we wish to continue today. It's certainly an emotionally charged question and has divided the religious community for centuries now. Last week we noticed several passages of Scripture, but we began and spent much of our time in Paul's letter to the Galatians. If you missed that study, I encourage you to go back and watch it or order the free transcript. Today we'll look at some other passages, but we want to spend a considerable amount of our time in the book of Hebrews. This letter, possibly penned by Paul, is an exhortation for believers to stand firm in the gospel in view of the temptation to go back to the sacrifices of the Jewish temple. Jerusalem would soon be destroyed, and all that the Jewish Christians had known would be shaken, and only those things in Christ would remain. It would therefore be a futile and even dangerous matter for them to turn their backs on the faith and go back to an insufficient and doomed system. For example, let's read from Hebrews chapter 6, beginning in verse 1 and reading through verse 6. Here the inspired writer says, Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms, of laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits, for it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away to renew them again to repentance, seeing they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put Him to an open shame. What are the elementary teachings that these believers were to leave behind? And what is the stern warning about for those who refuse? Well, that's just a portion of what we'll consider in part two of our lesson, Can a Christian Forfeit Salvation? And I'll return with our study after a song. Worship the Lord, He is worthy of praise. Sing to Him now a new song. A song of praise, give to Him glory the rest of our days. Let hallelujahs
are those who affirm the Calvinistic doctrine of perseverance of the saints, or once saved, always saved, who will go so far as to admit that regardless of the sins a believer commits and does not repent of, that he or she will still be eternally saved. Most people who hold to the doctrine, however, try to make a more nuanced argument. They will often say that either, number one, a professing believer who renounces their faith and forsakes Christ was never really saved to begin with, that they were a counterfeit Christian or a pretend believer. Or number two, many will argue that a Christian may temporarily fall out of fellowship with God and suffer consequences in this life for their apostasy, but if they were really saved, God will correct them and bring them back to Him so that they will not be eternally lost. In any case, they believe that any person who was saved at any point in their life will always be in a saved condition and they can never forfeit salvation. They claim that if it were possible for a saved person to sin and be lost, then God would be breaking His promises or that man's salvation is being earned by His continued obedience. Well, I deny both of those claims and I believe that it is impossible to reconcile the doctrine of once saved, always saved with several plain passages in the Word of God. Last week we saw where Paul warned those being swayed by the Judaizers to depend on keeping the law of Moses for their salvation, that they would be severed from Christ and that they were fallen from grace. As we noted then from Galatians chapter 5, it's hard to imagine how a person could, number one, be severed from someone they were never attached to, and then number two, how they could fall from the grace they were never in, and number three, be in a saved condition while at the same time be severed from Jesus Christ, our only hope of salvation, and fallen from the grace of God, which is what brings salvation. Well, today let's look at some other passages, several in the book of Hebrews, which express the same idea and take much the same tone. Now, as I pointed out in the beginning of today's program, the city of Jerusalem and the Jewish temple, along with all the things that allowed it to operate, were on the cusp of being destroyed. The Levitical priesthood was about to be done away with. Even though the Jewish Christians had accepted Christ as their Messiah, still yet the temple was the only way of life they had known for most of their lives, and their culture was about to crumble around them. As that old system was shaking and about to be taken away, and as those who sought to maintain and defend it were opposing and persecuting the church, it was a strong temptation for those believers to draw back and revert to their former way of worship. So the writer of Hebrews makes a masterful argument throughout the letter that everything about Christ and Christianity is better. Whereas those sacrifices were temporary and insufficient, Christ's sacrifice was forever and able to fully and completely forgive sin. Whereas the Levitical priesthood was only temporary and uh, it was insufficient, Christ is the perfect high priest for God's people. So he uses that understanding to encourage them to resist this temptation and to press forward in their faith in Christ and not to turn away from Him, going back to an outdated and inadequate system. That's really the foundation of the book of Hebrews. But friend, it's not merely a matter of Christ being better and it being foolish to leave Him for those things. I believe the Hebrew writer shows that it was a matter of spiritual life and death. It was potentially a matter of, common, of, of condemnation if they did so. And the scriptures clearly bear that out. For example, in chapter 2, he warns beginning in verse 1, Therefore we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, 
lest we drift away. For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, and was confirmed to us by those who heard him? And the writer goes on to show how the message of Christ was verified by the miracles the apostles wrought through the Holy Spirit. In other words, they should be willing to entrust their souls to this message because it was confirmed by heaven itself. Now notice that he warns his readers about the danger of drifting away. Well, how would you drift from some place where you never were to begin with? If disobedience under the old covenant was punished by God, how would it be worse for people under the new covenant if they drifted away and disobeyed the faith, if he's not talking about the loss of one's salvation, if they leave and depart from Christ. Now, the writer continues that theme throughout the letter. He combines encouragement to cling to the Christ with warnings against forsaking him. Look, for example, in chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. It says, And Moses indeed was faithful in all his house as a servant, for a testimony of those things which would be spoken afterward. In other words, Moses was over a temporary system that pointed forward to Jesus. But he says, Christ as a son over his own house, whose house we are, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. Well, it begs the question, what if we don't hold fast that confidence? Again, how could they hold on to something they never had a hold of to begin with? What if they fail to hold on to their hope firm to the end? You see, the apostle makes the matter conditional with that word if, as the Bible so often does. He then continues in verses 7 through 11 to remind them of how their fathers tempted God in the wilderness and failed to enter the promised land those thousands of years before and enter into God's rest. And he then adds this strong warning in verses 12 through 14. He says, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become, listen, we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. Notice he says, they through unbelief could depart from the living God and therefore should exhort one another. They could harden their heart. Well, that implies that there was a time when their heart was not hard. Friends, he's not talking about Jews who had not yet accepted the Christ. The people he is warning against departing from the living God were the same people who were to be exhorting one another in the Christian faith and he talks more about that in chapter 10 when he speaks of their assembling as the church. They were to be exhorting one another in the Christian faith so they would not depart from that faith. Go to the next chapter, chapter 4, verse 11. He's still talking about those who failed to finish the journey and enter God's rest. And he says, Let us, therefore, be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. And then we go to chapter 5 where he rebukes them for not growing in their understanding when they should have already progressed to a higher level of faith. And he then begins chapter 6 by saying this, Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, 
not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms, of laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits, for it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put Him to an open shame. Now, the writer says that, the, uh, says that they are to leave the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ. What does he mean by that? What are those elementary principles? Well, if you'll notice the list of foundational things he then enumerates, you can see that he's talking about things pertaining to the old law that laid the foundation for Christ and the new covenant that Christ would come and inaugurate. He says, for example, repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. He's referring here to the cause of repentance found throughout the Old Testament. And that phrase, dead works, only occurs here and in chapter 9, where it refers to works that would leave the conscience still uncleansed. It's talking about those works back under the old law that pointed forward to something but were not the reality themselves. That inadequate old system under which the people failed time and again and that could not in and of itself make them right with God. Then he refers to leaving the doctrine of baptisms or washings. Now he's not talking about New Testament baptism there because for one thing, he uses a different form of the Greek word for baptisms, which is not used to refer to the ordinance of baptism in the New Covenant, but rather it refers to the ceremonial washings under the Old Covenant. Now the Jews, you recall, were preoccupied with such ceremonies and washings in the law, and that's what the Hebrew writer is talking about here. Next he speaks of laying, uh, leaving behind the laying on of hands which refers to how the priest laid hands upon the sacrifices of the Levitical system. He's saying, as he will continue to argue in this letter, that that means of dealing with sin was to be left behind and they were to look to Christ. He then mentions resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment. Well, he's not saying that Christians should not be concerned about the future bodily resurrection and we, that we shouldn't be warning of the judgment day ahead because that would contradict Paul's lengthy discussion of the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul would not have been taking his own advice if that's what he was talking about. He's referring here to the Jewish speculations under the Old Testament dispensation concerning, concerning those shadowy ideas that they had under the law before Christ came and made those things clear by the gospel and by his own resurrection from the dead. In fact, Paul one time told Timothy that Christ, by the gospel, has brought immortality to light. So he's talking about the temporary system, the old law that they were tempted now to go back to. Paul says, leave that behind. They were to have moved beyond those things. Those elementary or foundational elements had served their purpose and they were now to have moved into the perfection or the true substance of those things in Christ Jesus and in the Christian faith. Now then notice his warning. He says, For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift, that is the forgiveness of their sins, granted from heaven, and they have become partakers of the Holy Spirit, 
the gift that was first preached about by Peter in Acts 2 verse 38 when they were told to leave their sins by repenting and being baptized and have tasted the good word of God, the gospel, and the powers of the age to come. And the age to come is an expression in the Bible that refers to the messianic age. And then, when, after seeing, hearing, tasting, and receiving all of those things, if they fall away, the ESV says, and then have fallen away, to renew them again to repentance since, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put Him to an open shame. Now friend, if Christ and the gospel cannot change a person's heart, then nothing can. And if one turns away from Christ, having tasted and been made partakers of all of these things, he is turning away from his only hope. That's the whole impetus of the Hebrew letter. So what's he saying here? Can a straying Christian repent and return to Christ? Absolutely. And you should do so immediately if you're willing to repent and have left the Christ, have left the faith. The problem is those the writer is talking about are on the verge of repudiating Christ and in the process so hardening their hearts. Remember the warnings he's already given about doing that? That their heart becomes incapable of godly sorrow and then repentance. It's not that God can't forgive. It's the fact that they harden their hearts to the point that there's no room for repentance. And anytime one willfully does that which he knows is wrong, once he's been enlightened, and he knows what he is doing is wrong and he goes ahead and does it, the warning is he takes yet one more step toward creating that hardened condition of heart. And friend, that is very dangerous. If you can repent, you can be forgiven and you can be saved. The problem is some people knowingly go into sin and persist in sin and defile their conscience until it becomes impossible for them to ever be sorry for their sins and repent and turn back to God. Now, friend, I want to stress, I'm not suggesting that the Christian is walking some near impossible tightrope to heaven and that God is gleefully waiting for the opportunity to pounce upon us and take away our salvation. God forbid. God is on the side of those who love Him. He grants us the grace to grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior when we come to Him in simple yielding faith. And God isn't going to renege on His promise and arbitrarily take away your salvation or mine. Nobody has the power to come and steal your salvation away from you. And God isn't looking for ways to deny you eternal salvation. That is not the idea. He in mercy and love has made every provision through His Son for you and me to be saved. And praise God for that. The question is, what of those who repudiate Christ as these Hebrews seemed on the verge of doing, who leave Him, who cease striving to serve Him? What of those who rebel and cast aside their faith in Jesus? What of those who refuse to submit and obey what Christ tells them to do? They rebel against Him. Are we really to believe that one can do so with eternal impunity? Quickly look at Hebrews chapter 10 now, beginning in verse 24. There he says, and let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking, again the ESV says, not neglecting, the assembling of ourselves together, 
as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. In other words, if you go back to that old covenant, there is no sacrifice there that can take away your sins. All of those sacrifices were contingent upon the sacrifice of Jesus. But he says all that's left if you do that is a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace? Now friends, who's in danger of all of that? Those who need to regularly assemble and provoke and encourage one another to remain faithful to Jesus, that's who he's warning. Now who can deny that he's talking about people who were at one time genuine believers and then he warns them of eternal judgment? Then look at verses 35 and 36. He says, Therefore, do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward. Well, to cast it away, you have to have it. Don't cast it away, he says. For you have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. And then finally, look with me in 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 1. Here he says, But there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them, and bring upon themselves swift destruction. Now did you get that? Even denying the Lord who bought them. Now the doctrine of Calvinism says that Christ only died for the elect. But here Peter warns of people who the Lord bought who will bring upon themselves God's judgment and swift destruction. Friend, the doctrine of once in grace, always in grace may be a comforting and appealing doctrine to many, but it's simply not taught in the Word of God. Christ Jesus is our hope of salvation and our only hope of salvation, and we must place our faith in Him. That salvation is conditional upon our faith, and that faith is an obedient faith, consequently. It's an acting and a moving faith. We must submit to His will and obedience, and we must cling to Him. And when we do that, we will not only know the abundant life here, but have the hope of life in the world to come. Clinging to Christ means that when we, as we grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ, when we realize we're falling short, when we sin, we confess our sins to Him, and we ask Him to forgive us, and we remain in fellowship with Him, as the Apostle John says. But if a person gives up on the Christian faith and casts aside his practice of the faith, he forfeits the salvation he could otherwise have. And if you once knew Christ but left Him and went back into the world and forsook the faith, you need to return. And if your heart is capable of repenting, you need to repent today and do not harden your heart anymore. He'll receive you and He'll help you and form His image within you, but you must be ready and willing to surrender and yield to Him today. For many years I was a slave to Satan,
Connect with us on social media. Go to Facebook.com and search for Let the Bible Speak TV. Our time is about gone today. There are certainly many other passages that we could explore and investigate pertaining to this topic. Surely of the passages that we have examined are enough to show that the doctrine of once saved, always saved cannot be reconciled with the teachings of the Bible. And I hope that you'll go back and study and examine this subject in light of what the Bible teaches, not what a church creed says, not what a preacher, including this one, has to say, but what the Bible has to say in regard to the subject. And if our transcript of today's study would be of help to you, we'll be happy to send it to you free of any cost or obligation. Simply get in touch with us and ask for the lesson, Can a Christian Forfeit Salvation? And today's lesson was part two in this two-part series. If you'd like both, and let us know that when you get in touch with us. Can a Christian Forfeit Salvation? And we'll be glad to send that to you free of any cost whatsoever. Also, remember you can find past broadcasts as well as transcripts at our website, ltbstv.org. Our social media platforms continue to grow, and we're very happy about that. And if you would like to help us continue to spread the word, to spread the gospel, one of the ways you can do that is to go and to like our Facebook page or subscribe to our YouTube channel and share those with your friends and encourage them to follow our pages and to, and to watch our broadcast from week to week as well. Thank you for joining me today. It's truly an honor to spend this time with you and open up God's holy word and to learn what it has to say to us. And I hope you'll make it your plan to be back with me next time, if the Lord wills, for another Bible study. Until then, hope you have a wonderful week ahead. We'll see you next time. Until then, God bless you. Let the Bible Speak is brought to you by The Church of Christ. For more information, including our past broadcast and sermon transcripts, visit ltbstv.org. Thanks for being with us today. Join us next time for Let the Bible Speak.